And the military in our nation has numerous acronyms that it uses to be able to communicate quickly with commanders and personnel in the theater of operations or to be able to troubleshoot equipment in a moment's notice. STAR is a common one with a number of applications depending upon the branch of military, the field of operations, or whether one is dealing with a piece of equipment or with specifically a soldier at work. On the equipment side of the ledger in the Navy, for example, when out to sea and something is being tested and if it's not performing as it should, STAR means to stop, to think, adjust, and repeat. In the early 1990s, the United States War College adopted the acronym VUCA, which is used regularly in the business world for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. For the War College, the goal is to train soldiers to find and implement new ways of seeing and responding and adapting under wartime conditions of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. VUCA is now considered by many to actually be the new normal that we are actually living in daily in this world. We have volatile financial markets and volatile social structures. We have uncertain futures and even uncertain governance within our world. We face complex issues and struggles that are difficult to resolve. And there's ambiguity on every single front with no clear path forward. Now, the goal, business-wise and militarily, when facing VUCA, is instead of volatility, to come up with vision. Instead of uncertainty, replace it with understanding. In the place of complexity, invite clarity into the process. And when facing gridlock, the gridlock of ambiguity, become more agile in those situations. Now, if ever there was a time like ours right now of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, it was in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C. during the era of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. During the fall of the northern kingdom and the impending fall of the southern kingdom. And if ever there needed to be a time for new vision, a time for understanding, a time for being clear about what's happening and clarity, and ever a time for agility, it was in this period in Israel's history. And I might add, frankly, it's needed in our world right now as well. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see a vision of God that's beyond the chaos that threatened Israel or even threatens our world today. Isaiah saw a vision of the holy God of the universe in all of his sovereign authority ruling over the affairs of the earth. Periodically, the Bible breaks through our limitations regarding vision and opens up the unseen kingdom that surrounds us on every side, permitting us a glimpse of the true glory of God. Centuries ago, people believed that the earth was flat and that explorers, when they ventured out on the high seas, they, were, they could at any moment's notice drop right off the end of the earth. Of course, as one looks at the horizon with the naked eye, we're unable to see the curvature of the earth. So from our human perspective, it seems flat, especially to an unenlightened, uneducated, uh, many uh, illiterate in the culture back then, a population so many centuries ago. In other words, these people believed only what they could see. And I think many view God this way as being kind of unknown, uninteresting, 
as God is remote or obscure or even mysterious. And this God, you know, and, and that God is somehow has very little to do with the affairs of life or what's going on even on this planet. So we're kind of on our own. And some like to even go as far as say, since, since God cannot be seen with human eyes, then God must not exist. Where is your God? Many in our culture say there's actually songs about that. Where is your God? And just like in Isaiah's time, when people, the worship of Yahweh had fallen off significantly, it was being replaced back then by idolatry and immorality, this self-centeredness and a lack of regard for God and his ways. And they were beginning to wonder at that time, where is God? Even the faithful people uh, were wondering, when's God going to deal with that? Where is God? And all of a sudden, Isaiah is presented with this glorious vision of God sitting upon his throne, the very symbol of the sovereign authority in heaven and on earth. It's glorious because it's a heavenly vision, but it also presents to us temple imagery so that they tie together both heaven and earth. You know, the, the, the coal that touches Isaiah's lips is, is from, the, from the urn that would, with the, the burning of sacrifices outside the temple. So all of that is tying together both earth and heaven. So no longer is God being viewed as being detached and uninterested in the affairs of the earth or that God is somehow impotent in, to deal with them. God is exalted. God is majestic. God is enthroned on high, and God is being worshipped in this passage in his rightful place above all else. And perhaps like no other song in our Christian repertoire of hymnody, the hymn immortal, invisible, uh, captures what Isaiah is teaching. In verse 1 it says, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. This is also the very reason I think the Apostle Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, what he did, that we live by faith and not by sight. Our human eyes would suggest that our world is stumbling blindly along, ruled by mere human beings, the ones who can never seem to get it right, the ones who just take advantage of one another and are abusive and obnoxious and greedy and power mongers, the ones who are ruled by pride and covetousness and, 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 and advance according to their own whims. But what God's word wants us to remember is on this matter that down here in the lower earthly regions, God is enthroned on high. And this God is continuously being exalted and exalted and exalted. Now, sooner or later, this is going to happen to you. Someday, calamity is going to come crashing into your life. There are times when it comes with a forewarning. Other times, it just explodes upon us with no advanced warning. But the truth is, we must all take our turn at it. Life can go from being tranquil to anxiety-laden in a matter of seconds, ripping from each one of our grasp anything that resembles normal. Now, the question is in these moments, what will you do? That sudden car accident happens where someone hits you and all of a sudden you're bounced into other vehicles and the damage to personal property is extensive, but the physical toll upon your body is even higher. The emergency personnel arrive and they, they strap you to a backboard and then you are rushed by ambulance to the hospital. 
There you are in the, you know, the emergency room, rushed into surgery. There's numerous surgeries and long hospitalizations, followed by months and months of rehab. And all of a sudden, your life is filled with all kinds of unknown healthcare experts and personnel and advisors. How will you respond in those moments? Or what about that unexpected, earth-shattering diagnosis? You're healthy, active, engaged in your church and with your family and your community. And in a few short days, that all comes to a screeching halt. There are surgeries, complications perhaps from surgeries, limitations that are placed upon your movement and your diet and even upon rest. And then comes the ongoing extensive treatment plan. And there's fatigue that sets in, as well as challenges associated just with the treatment plan alone. Not to mention all the people uh, who want to are, are expressing concern for you and you wonder if you even have the emotional energy to take what it, what it does to acknowledge or even respond to these people and their well wishes. How do you respond in moments like these? This is how life happens. You're cruising through life with all of its ordinary rhythms when all of a sudden you're hit with a crisis. The phone rings, and when you answer it, you have no idea what's about to happen in your life. You say hello, and the caller then gives you the mind-numbing news. Your loved one is gone, or things don't look very good right now at the moment. There hasn't been a time uh, for you to say goodbye or even to say the important things you wanted to say to them. Things that a few moments ago were so important to you, like getting a meal prepared or finishing a task at home or cleaning or whatever you were doing, all of a sudden in that moment become completely irrelevant. In those defining moments of life when hardship punches us right in the mouth, where does your mind go? Does your mind go to immediately to anger? Does it turn to despair? Does it go to hopelessness? Or to pity? Do you become desperate or afraid or just uncertain? Do you go into a complete free fall in those moments? Or do you have something to hold on to in your life? When crisis comes our way, we need to grab on to something solid, something that will not change, something that we need to have predetermined before that day of trouble ever comes to us. Do you say in those instances with the psalmist in Psalm 100 verse 3, that the Lord is God? The Lord is God. And this is basically what the prophet Isaiah did. And by the way, he was raised in an affluent home. Isaiah was part of the aristocracy of his era. He was well-educated, and he had all the best opportunities of life that someone could be afforded in his time. And it says in Isaiah 6.1, In the year of the, uh, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here is the crisis Isaiah is encountering. The kingdoms of Israel have been divided already. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That was after Solomon's reign. So this has been going on for a while now, a century plus. And Uzziah, who was the king of the southern kingdom, he had ruled over the southern kingdom. He had been a good king for 52 years, and now he is dead. And you know, in times of national crises, 
Uh, people tend to, gen- to mourn as an entire nation. When John F. Kennedy passed away, or when uh, Pearl Harbor, the attack during World War II, happened, or when the World Trade you know, Centers were attacked a little over two decades ago by terrorists, people tend to mourn nationally. They mourn communally. And such experiences are so impactful that people can usually remember exactly where they were with certainty and clarity, what they were doing, uh, and they can remember these events vividly and, and even how they felt at those very moments. Yet we can't even remember what we ate for lunch yesterday. But that's how impactful they are. And this is the situation Judah is in, except for Isaiah, it's even worse. His good lifestyle that he has is about to go sideways. And beyond that, the throne of David is going to be empty during a crucial time in Judah's history. Assyria has been throwing its weight around for years, and there have been a force that's to be reckoned with, and Judah is absolutely no match for them either. And seeing in those moments uh, a marching toward the southern kingdom is very unsettling in Judah. Everyone's caught up with the daily news and what the latest update is on Assyria. Dread and terror are filling the hearts of the Judeans as their world before them seems to be falling apart. Does any of that sound familiar? You know, can things get much worse? Isaiah doesn't mention his king again here. But oh, does he talk about his God. Uzziah is dead, but God is alive. And it's as if Isaiah is reminding everyone of what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You know, when the universe came into existence, God was there. When Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden, God was alive. God was there. When Abraham was called to leave his homeland and move to this foreign land and promised that he was going to be a father of this great nation and he's going to have more descendants than the sand of the seashore and and the stars in the sky. And he didn't even have any children. No offspring. But God was there. God was alive. God was with him. When all these nations defeated and conquered and oppressed Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, the Syrophoenicians, Romans, God was still on the throne. God was alive and God was still God. And when our nation, this very nation, came into existence with all the good, the bad, and the terrible, God was still there. When kings and rulers come and go, when those near to us and far away from us pass on, God is still alive. And even like in 1966, when Thomas Eltzizer proclaimed that God is dead. And uh, Time magazine thought that was important enough to put it right on their front cover in 1966. God was still alive. And God will still be alive millions upon millions upon millions of years from now. God will be alive because God is God. And Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, when everything looks horrible, God, I saw God. I saw God. God's alive. 
and God is in control. I saw the Lord high and exalted. You want to know an interesting fact about the Bible? There's no vision of God in the Bible. There are no theophanies in the Bible, which are appearings of God in the Bible, that ever present God as being uncertain. Or ever present God as, you know, twiddling his thumbs. Or mumbling to himself in despair and uncertainty. And heaven, when it's portrayed, equally it's not portrayed as unraveling. Or coming apart at the seams. Or barely hanging in there. No, God is not at his wit's end. God is enthroned on high. And this isn't one of many thrones. It's the one and only throne that's superior in power and authority to all others. Later, Isaiah would say of this one who's enthroned, of God, in Isaiah 46, verse 10, here's what it says. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah says as well in chapter 6 that God's train is so grand, it's so remarkable that it infills the entire temple. It's that majestic, it's that regal. Verse 2 in Isaiah 6, above him were seraphim, which each with the six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Seraphim. The burning ones, it means. Really, these are lights, if you will, in glory. Angelic beings without sin. And they cover their faces and their feet in both reverence and humility as they worship God. They don't even dare to look upon the majesty of God. And they cover their feet as an act of utter submission to God Almighty. Verse 4 says, At the sound of their voices, these burning ones' voices, the seraphim, the doorpost and the threshold shook in the temple and was filled with smoke. I mean, it's, it's, it's as if uh, an earthquake's going on and this whole thing is shaking and rumbling and, you know, where people are filled with fear in those moments and, and looking to get out of the way of something that might collapse. There's this kind of incredible, awe-inspiring uh, event going on, smoke arising. Almost like a presidential entourage where the Blue Angels with six of their aircraft come flying over the top, breaking the sound bar barrier, and <laughs> the noise is so much, it shakes, and people's flesh even shakes. It's that kind of an event type of thing magnified going on here. And what are they doing, verse 3? And they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is holy. God is so distinct, so separate from all else. God is set apart, and, and he's complete. There's nothing that is out of order with God. God is total perfect. There isn't a thing that lacking in God. God is completely separate from the common and the secular one. And one of a kind, this God is holy, and the whole earth is full of his glory. From how the earth functions... By design with the law of gravity and the earth rotating on its axis to the seasons that come and go, which our season of winter just seems to not want to go here now. But we have rain and snow and sunlight and darkness and warmth 
and cooling and you have photosynthesis that causes everything to grow and you have ecosystems that are interdependent upon one another even down to the minutest forms here on earth like atoms and cells and how they are literally minute universes of wonder in and of themselves and of design and of intelligence and beauty the whole earth is full of God's glory and the Apostle John mentioned this very thing in John 12, 28, where Jesus had just predicted his death and, uh, and his heart was deeply troubled. He said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And later in verse 21, or 41 of chapter 12, he says this, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. Isaiah is the one who got the glimpse, who got to see this, and he wrote and he spoke about him. In Matthew 28, 19, just before Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, gave the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. This is the very glimpse that Isaiah received, and he was privileged to pass on to each one of us, you and me, through God's word. And what does verse 5 say? Woe to me, I cried when he saw this. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And even my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When it says I'm ruined, he's, he's coming apart literally at the seams. It's like it's so overwhelming. There's this moment of reverent fear, this cry of despair where Isaiah, Isaiah sees himself for who he truly is and God for whom God truly is. How deeply entrenched is his own human pride and self-sufficiency in contrast to God? The law says in Leviticus 10.3, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. That's exactly what happened for Isaiah. And I want to ask you today, has that been your experience with God? When you approach God, when you come to God, is it one of amazement of who God is and what God has done for us? We have the record right here of who God is. And is that absolutely amazing to you? Have you come to the place of recognition that this life is also not about us? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. Because that's a difficult place to come to. It's a difficult one to arrive at because we've been so uh, trained in our rugged Western culture of individualism that we tend to think that everything is about us when it's not. It's about God. The world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around the one who's enthroned on high in splendor and glory and who's going to be praised and exalted for all eternity. And this message is always more important to send out than any of us so-called messengers who can send it. All of us need to be like Isaiah and set aside our fears, our fears for this world and set aside our senses of self-righteousness and self-determination Shut off the news. Quit listening, uh, you know, periodically to all the junk that's going on in the world. And in complete humility, ask God to give us an expanded vision of His greatness, of His glory, of His holiness. And then to have God send us out into the world 
with the vision and the message of who God truly is. You know, one of the problems with evangelicalism is we've lowered people's view of God instead of raising people's view of God. And that's on us. But I pray that Isaiah's tribe may increase and that the God, and God knows our world needs this right now. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we thank you again for another character in the Bible who walked with you. And God, he got to see an amazing heavenly uh, vision of who God you are. And it was an important time in Israel's history to have that reminder. And Lord, we need that reminder right now too. It's so easy for our lives to be dominated by the news, the latest uh, crises. And we can even experience personal crises in our lives. And it can be so easy for us to then begin to wonder or question who you are and, God, what you're doing. And we know, God, you're not afraid of those questions, but we know that you're also still God Almighty. And so, Lord, help us to, to get to that right place and to be the people you want us to, to be in this world so that we can spread the good news of Jesus and cast the vision of who you truly are, God, instead of really, truly dumbing down who you are. And that's on us, God. We've done that, and we ask forgiveness for that. But God, send us out, I pray, as your messengers to proclaim who you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen.